This Week on Art in the Air features books, brushes, and bands for education founder Michelle Golden and communications development manager Ian Bundridge discussing this mission and its upcoming events. Next, South Shore Arts Neighbors Exhibit artist Ashley January discussing her deeply personal art journey. Our spotlight is on the family folklore's play about the 1933 Homes of Tomorrow coming to the dunes. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art, and show the world Welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. We'd like to welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight. She's been with us before about the wonderful things they do with the Family Folklore Foundation. And they, she has an event coming up, Meg Demakis, and it's the 1933 World's Fair Fairy Tales, If Buildings Could Talk. And it's going to be a radio show presentation at IUN Main Stage Friday, April 19th at 11 a.m. It's available for all, and we'll talk more about that. Meg, welcome back to Art on the Air Spotlight. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad that uh, the pandemic is easing up a little bit, and uh, we can have you. Yes. True. It's always nice to see you, Meg. Thank you. Nice Good to see you, too. So give us a little background. I think a lot of people know about the homes there that are now part of the National uh, Park on uh, Dunes. But uh, tell us a little bit about the history of that and then how this is going to become a radio play. Okay. Um, so in 1933, we had uh, the second Chicago World's Fair. Um, one of the best exhibits there, most popular, was the Houses of the Future, it's Century of Progress Homes. And um, we've been fortunate in Indiana to have almost 20 of them brought over uh, to Beverly Shores. We have about five that are left standing. And um, so people take tours once a year. It's like getting into a Taylor Swift concert to get the tickets. You know, it's very popular. (laughs) And so we thought, you know, there's a lot of World's Fair buffs out there. And um, a lot of people around here like to get like to go to see those houses they wonder about them so we thought it'd be a good topic to study so tell us a story about how they got from where they were in chicago over to our lakeshore and what was the purpose of doing that so robert bartlett he and his 
uh, brother had the biggest realty agency in Chicago. And um, he thought it would be nice to have a place in Indiana where the people from Chicago, because this was before air conditioning, um, they used to take the train up to Michigan. And he's like, why not have them stop off in Indiana? So they purchased some land. And actually, Beverly Shorts is named after his daughter, Beverly. I found that out. And once this fair gets taken down, those buildings are going to be kind of inexpensive, you know, because they got to take them down fast, almost like a circus tent. And um, he was able to purchase uh, quite a few of them, not very expensive, Lee. And then he brought them across to, uh, to Indiana. Most of them came by truck, but four of them came on a barge, one at a time with a tugboat pushing the barge. And that's how they got over. And it was 34 miles. So they have a long, long history being here. <laughs> Yes, they were only supposed to last three months, you know, for the fair. And the economy boosted so much, kind of like a Taylor Swift concert, that when Roosevelt got elected in 1934, he talked the fair people into running it one extra year. And um, that it was one of the few fairs that have actually made money. You know, it's like the Olympics. You have the Olympics in your, your town. You're usually not going to make money. But they made money, and um, they came out $8 million ahead. So that was after two years. They had um, 40 million people that came, 40 million. And then uh, they paid 50 cents a ticket. As we were talking about that, so they got over here. Was the purpose of having them here to develop Beverly Shores as a real estate option then? Yes. And and, and so Robert Bartlett would bring people over from Hyde Park. I mean, the, they came. They, that's where they were. They were over there by the Science and Industry Museum. And um, the people all around there knew about them. And so he kind of tapped into that audience and uh, he brought them over on the train or by car or whatever. And he'd serve them lunch and uh, they'd take a tour. And uh, those were the people that actually bought. They were teachers and professors and people from there. Um, even though it was in the Depression, that was the problem, is this was in the 30s. And so um, it didn't take off the way they wanted, but uh, it did. They're, they're still there. So with the five houses that are here, can you go through the names and what's special about each house? Okay. Um, and, and I have to say something that we wondered about is why did the Indiana Dunes National Park even want to buy them? Well, it wasn't that. It was they were there. <laughs> You know, so they, then they thought, well, we better take care of them. So that's how that happened. And the Indiana landmarks came in and they they help, um, you know, with propriety, too. Um, <clears throat> there's five houses. Um, one is a log cabin made out of cypress and um, <clears throat> it it has lasted very well. Uh, but the problem with cypress is uh, it's an endangered plant so that you can't use you can't build with cypress anymore. So it's really good to go there and uh, see how great it still looks after 90 years. Um, <clears throat> another house that they have is what, what we call the local Barbie doll house. It's the Florida house. It's flamingo pink, it's stucco, you know, and um, <clears throat> it was very heavy. In fact, two of the houses, the ones that are closer to the lake, that's um, the, the uh, Florida house, which was paid for by the state of uh, Florida, and then the Ross Stone House, which was made um, out of steel with a, a composite uh, stone, which you could make it any color. It was rose colored. And um, they're on the lakeside of uh, Lakeshore Drive. They weighed more than the space shuttle. Both of them did, wow. so that they wow. were very, very heavy. And then across the street, they build a dune there, and that's where they've got the Cypress House the House of Tomorrow, and the Arco Faro House. 
the Arco Ferro house is made out of steel. It came over as one piece and it was covered with enamel, which seemed like a great idea, except the clips that held it together were made out of iron. They rusted and the whole place fell apart. So the radio play, um, we're very excited. It's going to be in the new arts and science building over at IUN, which is right across from the library. There's free parking. It's in the main stage theater, which seats 500. And uh, the play has a beautiful background of color. Every member in our group is uh, preparing monologues. The five houses, they are actually children's nylon tents uh, that represent each house. Once they get over here, we have them speaking from the point of view of the houses. We need to let our audience know it's going to be a library to play IUN main stage Friday, April 19th, 11 a.m. Ticket information at uh, Family Folklore Foundation, Inc. Tickets are available at the door, $3 per student, $5 for a non-student. And for $10, the 1933 Chicago World Fair, Why Terriel's Books Could Talk. Thank you so much for coming in Art in the Air Spotlight, Meg. Thank you. Thank you, Meg. Art on the Air Spotlight and the complete one-hour program on Lakeshore Public Media is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art on the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. This is Terry O'Reilly, host of Under the Influence, and you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Michelle Golden and Ian Brundage to Art on the Air. Michelle is the founder and board president of Books, Brushes, and Bands for Education, as well as the owner of Golden Studio. Ian Brundage is the communications development manager for Books, Brushes, and Bands for Education. BBB4E was formed to enhance the fine arts education for children in literacy, visual and musical arts and serves students ages 5 through 18. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us, Michelle and Ian. Thank you for having us. Good morning to both of you. Well, yeah, well, first of all, Michelle, since you are the founding member of the whole organization, and I've heard the story before because we had you on several years ago, but I think our audience would love to hear it again. First of all, your personal story a little bit about, I always like to say, how you got from where you were to where you are now, and what caused you to form this organization because of something that was lacking in your community. And then, Ian, we'll do much the same thing with you, kind of do an introduction about you. So, Michelle, tell us about how you got from where you were to where you are now. So, part of... Um I, I guess you would say the birth of BBB4E was that um, we all know that nonprofits are generally formed and come from deficits. You know, we have reasons why there's something that we want to put in place. And at the time, in, in the year 2000, being a very young mother, I was diligently working in my studio creating a lot of awards for people like Chicago Medical School, uh, Northwestern, not too many Northwest Indiana clients, um, but mostly in Chicago. And at the same time, my kids were in school and I was starting to realize that things just were not the way I wanted to see them. And being a professional artist, um, I took some ideas to the principal and they said to me, well, this is the way it is. And anytime anybody says anything to me that like that, it's just, it's not enough. 
So my husband and I were at the place where our second son was getting to be older and we were thinking about starting and having maybe another child, a third child. I have two sons and we made the choice, consciously made the choice to start books, brushes and bands for education instead of having a third child, that this would be um, what we would do and into retirement work on the organization. So that's the, the short answer of that. Well, maybe just a little bit more about your background uh, growing up and everything in terms of how arts and music and those types of things uh, uh, did that, where you grew up and you know how that uh, was an early part of your life. So I've, I'm a lifelong Hammond resident. My father was a professional musician. He had his own orchestra in the late 50s, early 60s, and very early 60s. And um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was a consummate domestic. She knew how to make something out of nothing <laughs> every day. And I have three younger brothers that um, were very rambunctious and busy and needed their her full attention as much as possible. And I learned to be incredibly resourceful. And I spent a lot of time drawing and painting and making things. She taught me um, how to sew and cook and can and do all sorts of things like that. But I I had a very um, quiet, meaning not a lot of friends in my childhood. But I had the opportunity to learn about language from my grandparents and the time that I spent with family members that really cared about me. They listened to me. I was, you know, had lots of people reading to me. And so that was very important. And I did that same thing with my kids. And later on, when I went away to college, um, my background is in drawing, is in painting, drawing, and printmaking. And so when I left Purdue downstate and came to the world of work, um, I started in an engrossing studio in Chicago and learned firsthand. I apprenticed to understand what manuscript documents were about and literally worked in a studio understanding what that meant. Grinding ink, working with the T-square, all of which I still do today. But I've expanded that practice to um, do a lot of things related to fine art and bookbinding canvas painting that I'm getting back to now. And so because that was so much a part of me, I wanted that for my kids. And to the extent that it was excellent, that it wasn't just cut and paste, that it wasn't just working with manila paper. Um, and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find what I was looking for for my children. And that's where BBB Free um, came from. So after being read to all that time, were you as a child, do you remember being a voracious reader? Did you watch your parents read? That's a really good question. And the answer would be no, because um, my dad was a, a business person. I didn't see him read so much. I watched him type. I listened to his typewriter, to his Underwood. Um, my grandmother was all about language. I used to, she used to to keep me busy, she would um, have me make lists of words, like all the three-letter words I could think of, all the four-letter words, all the five-letter words, all the six-letter words. And I was big into playing Scrabble. So that love of language and rhyming and just understanding where words go, how they're placed, 
was always very important to me. And from that also came um, correspondence etiquette, which my father taught me was very important to him because he was writing letters all the time. I actually remember writing letters when I was five and having him give me a lesson on how to place the stamp on an envelope because it had to be a certain way. Um, so a lot of particulars, peculiarities, I guess, that I have that were rooted from childhood. But um, many of those etiquette pieces are missing today with people just not knowing how to say thank you. It's just generally in words, let alone writing them. Or how responding to email, even an acknowledgement. I find that one of yes. my frustrating things. You send an email and even if someone sends something to me, I, I usually, unless it's something obviously doesn't need a response, I say thank you or okay or something. Yeah, that's some of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And we'll talk more about uh, your art practice. Well, Ian, we're just going to go through the same thing. We want to really know about how... You know your how your childhood. Um, my family is from East Chicago, and I moved to Hammond when I was about four or five. So Hammond is very much where I grew up, right on Holman Avenue. I went to the Montessori Children's Schoolhouse that's still there. And looking back on that, I started to realize how big of an influence even just that building that that school is in. It's in what used to be an insurance building built in the 1920s, and it has stained glass windows inside, a chandelier, marble floors. It's a really decadent building for an elementary school to be in. And <laughs> I've learned that I love all of those details of life, um, like Michelle's talking about. After that, I went to Wilbright Middle School in Munster and then Munster High School and on to college at DePaul University down in Greencastle, Indiana. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I just knew that I was interested in art Throughout high school, I participated in journalism, so that is where I really started developing a love for writing and the appreciation for words, like Michelle talks about. But for me, it's sort of been more practical in terms of helping my fellow students, helping my community understand the things that are happening in the world, the challenges, the successes, really being able to share all those things through journalism. As I continued in college, I realized Journalism is a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> long hours, long days, never-ending deadlines, and that isn't really what I was interested in. I also had a passion for visual art, painting, drawing, and those things didn't really fit into a newsroom that well. So I shifted and started studying museum studies, which I realized is a passion that has been in the background of my life since Montessori. So I took a lot of art history classes, actual museum design classes, thinking about the layout of a space, how different artworks talk to each other, and the educational materials that are paired with all of that. And that's what I did in college. And I came back to Hammond after graduating, and I graduated on a Sunday, <laughs> and the BBB spring concert was on a Wednesday night that next week. So I said, I'll go see what they're up to. I didn't even mention that my one outlet to musical arts when I was younger was books, brushes, and bands. I, oh. My mom saw the flyer at the library and signed us up, signed my older sister and myself up. I was pretty hesitant to it. I <laughs> did not love the idea of performing and being mm -hmm. sort of the spotlight of attention. I always like to be more behind the canvas or behind the computer out of the spotlight. But 
through the Midwest Youth Choir, I really met new friends and learned how to open up in a whole new way that I wouldn't have in school or at my drawing classes or journalism classes. So that's why I decided to go back to visit that concert after graduating. And I brought my camera because journalism, that's what I was used to doing. And I just started taking pictures. <laughs> then Michelle saw me there and remembered me from when I was a student and years volunteering um, through college found and things like that. And the ball just sort of rolled from there. I've been working part-time with BBB since then, helping plan events, do social media, all those things that keep the ball rolling. So that's like beyond serendipity. That's right. like, <laughs> that's like so beautiful. So what is your personal practice? Like journalism is one thing, but did you, do you write stories? Do you write poetry? I mean, how, or do you paint? So how do you express yourself beyond yeah. um, BBB? Definitely. So my personal practice, I would say I'm a sculptural painter at that's the most outcome of my work. Paintings that have these 3D elements um, or sculptures that have painting elements. I am very concerned with the environment, like I think many young people are nowadays. So that is constantly what I'm thinking about when I'm choosing to make work or not make work. <laughs> and the materials I'm using, I really try to use things that are found objects, things that I have just came across in life or it's trash that maybe I find on the street or walking along the beach and try to incorporate those things into my work to give them a second life. I feel <laughs> very guilty about the environment, even though like I'm not responsible for all of it, but I want to do my part to reduce consumption, reduce waste, and hopefully through my artwork inspire other people um, to do that as well. What a story. I'm, I fully agree with that. I mean, I do too. My my children actually don't like my collection of found objects because they're not all pretty, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. I know early That's in my life, my, my older daughter was all about recycling. This was before they had curbside pickup. So we would live with recycling for a few weeks at a time before we had to drive it to the recycling place. So uh, yeah, I'm all about that. So what a great story and what a great uh, uh, find there, Michelle. Well, we'll get back to Michelle for a little bit and maybe Ian, you can jump in with Whenever necessary. Yeah. Tell us definitely. about the programs in general. You know, like uh, you see BBBE and I know we know, but what actually do you offer for students to do and how do they find out about it? It's in the library. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that definitely, you don't know what you're going to find at the library. Like, you just don't. Um, it's a great resource. Yeah. But treasures in our communities. Mm hmm. One of the, um, I guess most important pieces of Ian coming on board is that we have been maybe the best kept secret for a very long time. And we do work with kids from any zip code. So it's not limited to Hammond students. That happens to be where our office is. We're kicking off a project in Hammond because we are here, but that doesn't mean that we're not open to working in other places. Um, we started with projects in the schools before No Child Left Behind and ever, the whole world was different 24 years ago. But what we are, how people find out about us now is a great question because um, we don't have a huge marketing budget. We're trying to use social media as much as possible. 
But I think um, one of the ways people find out about us is through referral, specifically for the music portion. Um, but doing some of these more expansive and now explosive projects, which Ian can talk a little bit more about, is how we're trying to broaden our view for people to find out about who we are and the breadth of what we do. Yeah, Michelle, um, what is your capacity for serving the community? How, you know, approximately how many people can you have in a program at a time? It really depends, Esther, on the program. We're doing something very small called One Night, Two Stories um, in March, which would serve about 20 families. And the reading project that we're going to be embarking on in about 750 second graders that we're going to be serving. So it really depends on the scale, the scope, the event. It, it's really different. It just depends. I'll add to that. To step back a little bit, answering the services that we offer and the things that we do, if you think about our name, books, brushes, and bands, we really try to offer things in each of those areas. So the musical, the literary, the visual. The musical is definitely one of the most regular programs with the Midwest Youth Choir, which meets weekly during the school year and summer. And so that group is divided by age into two different choir levels. So there's the younger students who are age five to seven, and then the older group of eight all the way up to 18. And they meet weekly. They have performances at the end of each semester at least once. So summer, spring, winter. But then we also go into the community and the students are able to see the world and perform in spaces that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, in the summer, we'll be doing a project called Summer Serenade, which we did last summer as well, where the students actually go out and perform at businesses. Last year, we performed at the Hammond City Hall and the WJOB radio station. So really getting them out into the world and also offering a little musical break, a performance break for the people who are at their everyday job, just living their life to have a little smile. With the brushes and the books, those programs happen a little bit more, not as weekly, but they're still very important. With the books, we have the Book Brigade, which is our sort of flagship book program. And that we actually go out into communities, neighborhoods, walking door to door with volunteers and students from our choir program, knocking on people's door, just giving away free books. We have Red Wagon, so you'll always recognize us <laughs> and see us out. Um, we've been doing this since 2013, and we're super excited to get back into the community, back into the streets. We had to pause, obviously, during COVID for a number of reasons. But as of last fall, we've started planning routes again, and we're looking to expand outside of Hammond with this project for the first time, going into East Chicago, Gary, making sure that we have a wider impact similar to our music program that's open to students from any zip code. And do you look for volunteers? Obviously, it sounds like from the mm -hmm. breadth of what you're doing, uh, how would people do that and how would they uh, join? What, what kind of volunteership are you were looking for? Yeah, definitely. Volunteers are a big part of what make what we do possible, especially the Book Brigade. You can find out more information at bbb4e.org um, backslash volunteer. And those opportunities consist of actually walking with us on the routes, knocking on people's doors, having conversations. 
or if you're not as social or maybe not as mobile, then we also need people to help put stickers in books. We have a book brigade sticker that marks each book that goes through our collection. Um, we're also looking for people, people to help donate books, people to help sort our growing book collection. <laughs> Just yesterday, we got another donation of four boxes that we have to collect. So it's really a large growing project. There's also opportunities for volunteers to help at like the concerts, whether it's ushering or giving away the free books at events like that as well. Michelle, we just have a couple minutes, but I want to also give you an opportunity to talk about your own art practice. Uh, I, I assume you're still kind of actively doing something, but uh, maybe with this, it's taking up your time. I know like doing the radio show, my art practice gets kind of back burner, but tell us briefly about that. Um, my art practice is definitely there. During COVID, I went back to painting in a very different way. Um, I, I carry my, my sketchbook with me, particularly on the weekends and, and working on thumbnails for larger pieces all the time. So that, I, I would say, has um, been reborn in a different way. But um, my art practice is really, I am finding, aside from the awards and the custom pieces that I do that are commissioned specifically, the work is very much assemblage driven. A lot of times um, there are books half bound into pieces that are usually behind glass. Um, I'll use found objects as a part of that, but being a calligrapher, a lot of the copy the, the language itself becomes its own graphic. So um, the larges, the pieces can be large, they can be small. Um, I've just recently got a piece back from the state of Indiana that was in the Hoosier Women's Art Salon um, before COVID. It took that long to get it back. <laughs> and um, it was a specifically a, a piece about um, women's suffrage movement, and it was designed for the theme of that. So it, it really depends. Um, sometimes a private client will come to me or I'll do something and it'll get into the cilantro in, in Munster. But I, I want to be able to return to that because the work that I'm doing there, a lot of it is statement making. And I think that that's a great way to have a conversation in a sense, because you finish a piece, you put it behind glass and that's it. You know, you're done and you move on and your your thoughts and words are there for others to see. True. And it balances out what you spend so many other hours doing. You know, you need that personal practice. Yes. Yes. Well, this will air in April, uh, April 5th. But Ian or Michelle, why don't you tell us about a few of the upcoming events in our last about minute here? And also, once again, how people can get in touch with uh, your organization. Definitely. I can take this. So in April, we have our largest fundraiser for the year. All proceeds from the annual spring tea support our music programs and other art education programs. This is going to take place Sunday, April 28th at the Halls of St. George in Cherville. Tickets are on sale right now at bbb4e.org backslash events. So you can find everything at bbb4e.org backslash events. And you can also reach them at 219-932-3232. That's 219-932-3232. And this is a great fundraiser. It's the sixth annual one of this event. There will be a family-style lunch, tea service, and performances from the Midwest Youth Choirs, as well as this year our theme is Blossoming Community Literacy. 
So really emphasizing the book part, the literacy. We'll be highlighting the Book Brigade and all the work that it does, as well as the reading project that we completed um, back in March. So it'll be a great event. Uh, Michelle, would you like to talk about the spring concert briefly? That will be May 13th at 6.30 at Hammond Central, and we will be showcasing all the work that we've done this year, not only musically, but also that to include the How to Be a Lion with Ed Veer, the story that we have, we will be reading to about 800 second graders, and the um, art that will be created there will be on display at the high school. That's excellent. Well, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air. Uh, that's Books, Brushes, and Bands for Education. Uh, Michelle Golden, who's the founder and board president, Ian Bunbridge. Uh, he's a communication development manager. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing about your wonderful organization. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. It's an excellent organization. This is Clay Jenkinson for Listening to America, and you are listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media 89.1 FM and WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Ashley January to Art on the Air. Ashley creates contemporary paintings that are informed by her maternal experience, exploring themes of preeclampsia, premature birth, and birth trauma. Her newest body of work continues to address the black maternal mortality and morbidity crisis in America through painting and multimedia. Ashley was an exhibiting artist in the group show Neighbors at South Shore Gallery in Munster, Indiana. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, Ashley. It's really, really wonderful to meet you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. And Ashley, we're really glad to have you. And our audience always wants to know like your origin story. I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us all about yourself. Sure. So I was born in Illinois and I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, uh, specifically Flossmoor. And I went to Homewood Flossmoor High School. And there I they have a wonderful art program. And so I was able to take a lot of um, art classes there, um, which really started my curiosity into the arts. Um, so I was able to take like photography class, drawing, yearbook, and I specifically had um, a really cool teacher who I was um, an assistant to, a teacher's assistant to in yearbook class. And she noticed that I um, was actually pretty talented in, in drawing portraits from my drawing class. And she mentioned to me that I should maybe think about starting a business and commissioning portrait drawings. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a that's a neat idea. I wouldn't even know where to start. And she's like, well, how about you create a brochure first? And so um, she helped me create a brochure. She helped me to um, create the advertisement and uh, market my work. And um, I had started my little business in high school of drawing commissioned works of people. What a wonderful teacher. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> yeah, she she was incredible. And so um, that kind of really propelled me to start thinking about art as a career. And um, I even started participating in some of the shows at HF. They had this really cool bagel show program at the Great American Bagels around the corner that I participated in a few times. And then um, they had a show at the Prairie State College, which I actually won like best in show for the first time. 
And then I started to be kind of recruited by um, art schools, but I didn't really know, you know, what I would major in. I didn't, I didn't really have that mentor to kind of look up to as, as far as how to become a professional artist other than like teaching. And I was kind of intimidated by teaching. And so I, I was trying to figure out what I was going to study in school. So needless to say, I ended up choosing a major where I thought I would, I, I thought I could secure um, a more steady income, I guess, after I graduated so I could support myself. So I chose communications and advertising because I thought I could do some creativity there as well. But I minored in studio art. Um, so I was able to take some classes in college too at Bradley University. And then I chose to uh, study abroad my junior uh, spring semester, my junior year in Florence, Italy, where I got to take more classes, more art classes. And so it was, the art was always there, but I didn't really start to take it seriously until later on. Um, after I graduated college, I moved back home because it was during the recession in 2009. And, you know, I was trying to get that job and I ended up uh, landing a job full time with benefits in marketing, PR, event planning, that type of thing. Um, but I was doing some graphic design work um, with newsletters and all that too at the, at the job. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and I realized, you know what, I'm really missing the art. I want to get back into it. I want to take some more art classes. So I found this atelier up north called the Truvian Fine Art Studio. And uh, husband and wife team, Mindy and David, teach there. And I was there for two and a half years and developed my portfolio. And then I kind of got to a point where I had learned all my fundamental skills there of drawing and painting and you know, color theory, working from live models, still lives, that type of thing. And I wanted to really push it and take it to the next level. So they advised that I, you know, apply to grad school. And so, you know, I had never really gone to art school because I'd gotten my degree in communication. So I was a little intimidated by that, but they were very encouraging and very supportive. So um, they both graduated from New York Academy so they recommended that school or Laguna College of Art and Design. And so my husband and I decided to go out west. So I, I ended up getting into LCAD out there and got my MFA and uh, graduated in 2017. And being from Chicago, we knew we were going to move back because our family's here and everything. So 2017, I graduated and I've been working full time ever since. So... What a great story. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, it's just, it's so amazing how one person who intervened, that teacher, really started this whole course for you. And mm -hmm. I just so applaud that involved teacher. How wonderful. Was there any other earlier things prior to high school? We sort of went from, you know, uh, that, uh, any art experiences at all that uh, you experienced or, or not? I mean, other things that you did prior to high school? I mean, prior to high school, I was always really interested in arts and crafts and drawing and painting and stuff. And, you know, I had my little Polaroid camera. So photography mm -hmm. has always been there too and encouraged by my parents. Um, but I, I didn't really take it seriously until I think I got to high school when I started, you know, choose to take these classes on my own and really kind of pursue my little business, um, you know, uh, that my my uh, yearbook teacher showed me how to do. So the art had always been there since I was little. You know, it just kind of evolved into this big, bigger thing when I was in high school. So Ashley, is your family creative? Um, it sounds like they certainly supported whatever direction you wanted to 
to follow, which is excellent. Um, so my family, they are, um, very enthusiastic about education. (laughs) Um, you know, but they're, neither of them are artists, but I do have a family of singers. My, both of my grandmothers were singers. Actually, my mom, she sang in the choir when she was in college too. And so we have that side of art, the, the, uh, the music side. And I grew up, um, in elementary school, I did have to choose an instrument and I chose to play the viola. So I played the viola from fourth grade, actually, until my sophomore year in high school. But then I got to a point where I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to become a professional, you know, uh, player when I get older. This is a great skill to have on the side. But I really, I would like to dedicate my time and I, uh, you know, to the to art, to drawing and photography and stuff like that. So I I told my mom, you know, I'm going to quit orchestra and I'm going to take drawing and painting. So thank you for introducing that to me, but I I think it's time for me to kind of segue to something else. (laughs) Yeah. So um, as you were talking about those, um, the atelier that you studied at and grad school, when was it that you started? So with your portfolio, was that a variety of things or were you starting to work on a series of work? When did that happen for you that you developed a body of specific work? Mm-hmm. That that happened um, in grad school. So at the atelier, I was really learning more of the fundamentals and, and um, mastering how to draw, how to paint, you know, how to apply color, how to mix color, how to paint from life, how to put together still lifes, all that. Um, and I got pretty good at that after two and a half years, but I really wanted to investigate more of the conceptual side and figure out what are the themes that I'm interested in? What are the stories that I want to tell? What do I want the viewer to experience when they um, walk into a space and see my work, you know, in communication all together at once? Um, And so that's when I realized, you know, I, I really need to take it to the next level and get this MFA so that I can learn how to put together a cohesive body of work, which is what I what I learned how to do for the first time um, at LCAD. And what was that first body of work? What were you? So the first body of work about? was um, specifically about the investigation into the self and my ancestry, lineage, heritage, you know, my identity, where I came from. Uh, and because I had always been curious about it and I had heard stories, you know, from my parents, my grandparents about them migrating from the South, you know, the great migration, but I didn't really, you know, go to those places. I didn't really, I couldn't, I didn't never saw it for myself. You know, my mom went to school in Mississippi, same school my grandmother went to, um, and she's from Clarksdale, Mississippi at at Russ College, which is a historically black college. And I'd always heard of Russ College and that's where both of them sang in the choir, um, but I had never been there. So during my thesis research, I went to Mississippi, Clarksdale, and I saw, you know, I went to Russ College and I saw it for myself and, um, you know, took a lot of photographs of my journey. And then my husband was with me and we um, ended up going on a trip to investigate his ancestry too. He's um, Creole. And so we went to Louisiana and um, actually found a, a cousin that he had never met, a distant cousin. And she, we came over to her house and 
she made us gumbo and, you know, we talked with her and took some photographs and, you know, so it really informed this whole um, ancestry and lineage investigation um, that I was curious about and I wanted to kind of take a step further. I even took the ancestry DNA test um, to see where in my origin story, you know, kind of started, not just in the United States, but, you know, the diaspora. Right. You know, uh, one thing that strikes me, and it's like the first image on your website, is, of course, it's kind of a self-portrait with Quinn. And uh, when you do, you incorporate a lot of yourself in work. When you do that, first of all, do you work from a picture of yourself? Because, you know, it's kind of difficult to kind of do that. How does that process work when you're working with you as part of the subject? Right. So, I, you know, my work is, I would consider it to be autobiographical, and I am doing a lot of self-reflection. Photography is a part of it. Um, it's a big part of it. I've taken a few classes in it. So, you know, it's always been there. I always um, use it as reference material, but I don't consider my paintings to be uh, photorealistic uh, because the photographs are more like, you know, a type of study in a sense. I do like to make smaller studies um, in paint but I also, you know, go back and I comb through all the photographs that I've taken. Um, and then I pick out the ones that really stand out to me and I'll print out a few of them and put them next to the smaller study on the wall <laughs> and then kind of take from each photograph and put that, apply that in the smaller study. So there's, a, I call it kind of like a paint collaging that kind of happens with a smaller study. And the photographs are a point of departure where I can take from a few of them as sources uh, and, and then apply them and, and create a whole new image, you know, on a smaller scale and then kind of blow that up and even take from the study um, and improvise uh, new things onto um, a larger scale. But when I am depicting myself, yes, they do come from some photography. Sometimes I'll paint from life too, and I'll, I'll, you know, put a mirror up yeah. there next to me. And if there's details that I miss from the photograph and I'll have to go <laughs> into the mirror and then, you know, figure those out, work through those. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM on WVLP 103.1 FM. It's really like the scale of that painting. Um, you know, we see you know, when an artist shows their portfolio page and, and the dimensions are on there, it's sometimes hard to really capture the enormity of some of the large work. And your Instagram um, was valuable to me in that respect, just like right now, you know, seeing you with the paintings behind you. And I've seen them on your portfolio page and I didn't have a sense of the scale as I'm looking at it, even though I, I, I of course, can intellectually know what x times x equals you know but the visual is just amazing so what what was that like painting so large for you and and you know when you when you have something in your mind do you know what size you want to do or is that like does that come out in your sketches or some of these other processes you were just talking about right I think I have an idea of how many large-scale works I want to include in the series and how much realistically I can get done um, mm -hmm. when I'm looking, when I'm setting a deadline for myself to complete the series, uh, which typically is around four or five 
really large scale paintings. So it's like seven foot paintings, six or seven foot paintings. Um, and then, you know, I work in a range of scales. So I have got the smaller studies too. And then I've got, you know, medium sized paintings as well in the, in the entire body of work. So I'm thinking about all these things and how they're in, in conversation with each other. And typically like the larger scale works will, will depict the participants and their family members specifically, whether it be the mother birthing person with their child, or now it's kind of evolved into the mother, their partner, and then a, ch a child or, you know, all of their children together. So it's like the family unit that I'm really interested in depicting um, on a larger scale in the environments. And yeah, I, so it kind of evolves as I'm, as I'm thinking about the entire project but I, but initially when starting it, I, I have a, an idea in my mind of how many I can get through uh, for the series, how many I'm happy with, you know, um, but I'm usually working on around three or four paintings at a time. And I right. have two studios. I have my home studio and then I have my studio downtown at um, Mana Contemporary. It's so interesting. So when you're painting a series, do you have do you already have the idea of what gallery or do you know what gallery or institution it's going into? Or do you start out just going, okay, this is the theme I want to explore and this is how many paintings I'm going to do? Or I can, it's probably a combination of both, but. <laughs> yeah, it is a combination of both. And one, there are so many valuable things that I learned while in grad school. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my mentors, Luis Serrano, he taught me to think about putting together the body of work and how they would be in a space, um, curating the space as I go, actually, uh, mm -hmm. when I'm creating the body of work and um, physically laying it out and organizing it, you know, in, in documents and stuff. And so I, that's how I think about it now. And I might not have that destination of the institution where it's going to, you know, live for a while at, at that moment, but I'm confident that, you know, it will land in a place and I will, you know, whether it be through applications that I might have to do. And now I'm really excited because I have a, a new gallery representation with Cynthia Corbett Gallery. So I'm working with her to get the work shown in um, different fairs that she participates in throughout the year. And uh, we, we're in talks of bringing the work um, in, a, in a space, one of the... Um, perhaps her alma mater, which is um, in Boston. Um, and I forget the name of it. I can't remember. Um, but we're, we're in talks about bringing this new body of work there now. So I'm, we're trying to work through it. But I'm not completely done with this new body of work. I, I think I'll be done in uh, September. So yeah. I was curious on the Neighbors exhibit, uh, how mm -hmm. you hooked up with uh, Tom and Linda and in how your work uh, fit in with the overall theme of Neighbors. Right. So um, very interesting. I I had never really, um, I, I didn't know about Tom and Linda. Uh, I asked, Linda sent me an email and um, explaining, you know, the concept of the show, the exhibition, and she wanted to include me in an invitation. And then when I met her in person, she, I asked her, oh, okay, how did you hear about me? How did you find my work? And um, she said that she found it through the New American Paintings catalog. So that's how she she found me and wanted to include me, which was 
amazing, you know, um, that's such a, a, you know, an honor to be a part of this exhibition. And it's such a great show, um, the neighbors exhibition and, and the artists participating are, you know, incredible. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. So I love the theme of neighbors. You know, I think it's very timely. Um, and I think my work fits in well because, the people that I'm depicting are everyday normal people, you know, that you'd see walking down the street, but they all have these tremendous stories that really need to be heard and they're bravely sharing with the world. And um, it's an honor that I could bring it to a South Shore Arts Center for people to not only see the paintings in person, but also listen to the audio narratives that are installed um, with the portraits. Tell us about maybe what future work you're, uh, you sort of touched on this, but like future work you're working on and uh, maybe future exhibits you're looking at. Sure. Um, so I mentioned that I now have representation with Cynthia Corbett Gallery and we're going to be participating in Expo Chicago this year, um, which starts April 11th and runs through the 14th at Navy Pier. So I'm really excited about that. Um, first time participating in Expo. And then... Yeah, Expo's I, fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so exciting. And I'll be debuting my new body of work, which is titled Environments of a Heavy Joy. And then I'm currently participating in um, this auction that's actually based in the UK called Art on a Postcard, War Child UK. And that goes on, um, that actually started today, goes live and runs through March. And I actually had to create these three little tiny um, postcard paintings for that auction. And I think they're going to exhibit them at the, I think it's called the Bomb Factory Foundation too in the UK. So I'm excited about that. And then I have a new group exhibition coming up called Mama's Need a Raise, which opens <laughs> on <laughs> March 24th and runs through May, um, curated by Catherine Gressel, and it's going to be at the Old Stone House in Brooklyn, New York, and I'll have three works in that show. And then I will be featured in another um, podcast called Postpartum Production Podcast. We'll be recording that at the end of March. And then for Black History Month, I was also contacted by another organization called Childbirth and Postpartum Professional Association, where they wanted to highlight an artist on their website. Um, and then I have one more show coming up in June. It's called Human Head, and it's actually curated by my mentor, Luis Serrano, um, at Art Division in Los Angeles. And that opens up in June 8th. You know, we're just getting to about one minute left here. I want to give you a chance to tell us how people can find you, uh, if you do commission work, things like that. So your website, uh, Instagram, all those types of things, Ashley. Sure. So um, my website is ashleyjan.com. And you can find more information about my work on my Instagram at ashleyjanart. And um, you can actually, if you want to, to purchase work, you can go to my gallery's website, which is the Cynthia Corbett gallery.com. Um, or you can email me and I can put you in contact with Cynthia at art at ashleyjan.com. 
Sounds great. We appreciate you coming on Art in the Air and sharing your art journey and uh, being in the South Shore Arts uh, Neighbor Show, which unfortunately, by the time this airs, is closed. But uh, that's Ashley January, and uh, you can see her work at ashleyjan.com and all the other sites. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. We'd like to thank our guests this week on Art on the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Art on the Air is also heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org. If you have a smart speaker like Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, or Apple Siri, just tell to play Art on the Air to hear the latest episode. Our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker, and for WVLP, Walt Reitinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself through art, and show the world your heart.